definition, a simple definition of a priest is one who celebrates the Eucharist for a community. One who follows up on that by preaching to a community and by organizing the community towards uh, service for that community. Well, I'd been in uh, a boarding school, uh, one of these diocesan seminaries, where there was more or less a tradition in the school, uh, an unwritten tradition, unspoken tradition, that 50% of the students in the place would go into seminaries, either foreign mission seminaries or Maynooth. And uh, there was no career guidance in that school, and I had no definite idea of what I wanted to do when I left school. So when the time came to leave school, instead of making a decision about a career, I decided, as it were, to, to prolong the secondary school period by just going on into a seminary. And uh, it was a non-decision, in fact, but... Once in the seminary then, I say after about six months in the seminary, I realized that I had uh, done something that had forced a decision on me and that I had to face up to it. So I, in the seminary, I decided that I wanted to be a priest. There, the recollections of a seminarian who left after three and a half years, and here, the recollections of a former ordained priest who left after 14 years in the ministry. Well, in my own background, I was had a very normal sort of Irish Catholic uh, family. I'm uh, a member of a, f- of a family of six children, and uh, my parents uh, worked very hard for all of us, and uh, were themselves, I think, very generous and kind towards other people and always felt that they should uh, be helpful and uh, should uh, took their religion, I think, very seriously. On a personal level, I found it a very lonely life. It was difficult uh, to have many friends of my own age and so on who were enjoying um, a close relationship with uh, uh, their uh, partner and who had a home and who had a base, and to have to come home to a monastic room at night. I found that um, quite, uh, quite bothersome, I must say. He is one of an increasing number of priests who are leaving. Precise figures are hard to come by, partially because not all of those who leave go through the formal process of canonical laicization. But some pointer to the trend is the fact that in the Dublin Diocese in the past ten years, Around 20 priests have left, and in the world terms, the figures of one order, for instance, the Jesuits, shows a drop of around 20% in a recent 10-year period, from around 36,000 priests down to under 30,000, which is a combination of falling vocations and priests leaving. Is the trend approaching that of a crisis? John Cooney, a journalist specialising in religious affairs. I think it's a far greater crisis than the Catholic Church has recognised than that the Pope has given credence to. For example, Pope Paul has said that there would be no change in celibacy and consequently many bishops and many priests feel that there is an element of disloyalty in discussing the celibacy issue. 
I think generally uh, their celibacy in almost all cases that I know of was a factor. In some cases it was the major factor. In other words, somebody wanted to marry somebody else or somebody felt that celibacy no longer made any sense for him. But I don't think that it's the only factor. But I think if you are being loyal to, to an institution and there is a problem, the greatest loyalty is to really examine that problem, uh, to look at the issues and to have it discussed in the open. And that if there is even a, a minority who are dissatisfied with the present regulation, the question should be faced. Can it be changed to accommodate those who feel the crisis most acutely? But part of the reason I sort of decided I wasn't going to go back, I suppose, because I came in contact with uh, women and with a social life that I hadn't been terribly familiar with before. The majority of priests who do leave, leave because they feel that they can no longer remain celibate, that they wish to, to marry. Of course, there are those who find celibacy unsustainable, the solitariness, the loneliness, the isolation of the life, and it becomes more and more difficult to sustain. And in some of these cases, there is literally no other problem. Professor Fahin O'Doherty. At the time, indeed, of the much-publicised leaving of the theologian Charles Davis, who subsequently married, a story which was current in circles in Irish seminaries was that of the young seminarian who came to his superior and said, Father, I think I'm losing my faith. And the superior replied, What's her name? But very often, of course, there's a, a complex of different problems simultaneously operating. Professor O'Doherty is director of the group of psychologists who specialise in the psychological assessment of candidates who offer themselves to the priesthood and to the religious life. Vocation is always specific. There is no such thing as a generic vocation to religious life or priesthood in general. It's always to this institute or to that diocese. So in order to have a vocation, the individual must be capable physically, psychologically, intellectually and morally of carrying out the works of the institute or the diocese he joins and he must be capable of bearing the burdens of that particular vocation. For me, the uh, contraception position taken up uh, by the Holy Father and uh, by the bishops uh, was in categorical, uh, a categorical denial, really, of uh, my experience of people pastorally and in the confessional and so on, where I felt that there was a very definite place for uh, the use of contraceptives within uh, married life where uh, people were experiencing great strain. We now have at our disposal a battery of tests, a series of ways of assessing individuals. Um, it's very much the same kind of assessment uh, that goes on in any other psychological evaluation of personality. There is one major difference. Um, if you're selecting, for example, into a particular profession or vocation, such as commercial airline pilot, you can predetermine in advance what we call the profile of the job. And so you can rule out all sorts of people, poor vision, lack of coordination, um, uh, immaturity, uh, etc. 
uh, incapacity to handle mathematics or trigonometry and so on. Well, there's no such profile for the priesthood or religious life. Nevertheless, the assessment of the strengths and weaknesses of the personality is much the same. We do it by purely natural means, on a purely natural basis. We never say, and we never claim to say, who has or has not got a vocation to religious life or the priesthood. I felt at the time that it was a very um, idealistic way of life for me to undertake, a way of life that would uh, give me the opportunity to help people, which I wanted to do, a way of life which would offer me opportunities also with regard to uh, my development, especially on educational lines, and that in general it would be a life in which I would be happy and uh, where I could uh, perform services for other people. All we say is that something of the order of perhaps 2.5% to 5% of all those who entered religious life and the priesthood in the past were and are now known to have been inadequate in one way or another. It may very well be that uh, I was uh, simply uh, not, not made for it or not built for it. Uh, I simply, I, I feel that in myself, but I, I can't give you a psychological um, account of myself that could make any claims to objectivity in this matter. And the Holy See is well aware of this, so that from about 1935 onwards, but gathering force from the 1960s onwards, has been the insistent demand by the Holy See that the whole personality of the candidate be understood in so far as human devices can help us to understand anybody. In other words, with all the resources of psychology, psychiatry, and the allied uh, disciplines. So that the insistence now uh, of the Holy See has become so uh, urgent that in one of the most recent documents, the document called Renovationis Causam, translated it means in the interests of renewal, in that particular document, it has even been argued that psychological assessment is now mandatory. Now, we would not say that it's mandatory yet for the very good reason that there aren't enough psychologists around to do the job. But insofar as it can be done, the onus is on the seminary rector or the head of religious order, the provincial or the general or the bishop, uh, to ensure that he has the psychological evidence before him which will indicate whether or not an individual is emotionally unstable, uh, predisposed to mental illness, intellectually inadequate, uh, a domineering, ruthless type, uh, a solitary, antisocial type, and so on. We have a whole range of ways of, uh, of, of uh, evaluating individuals of this kind. I wanted to be as good a priest as I could be. Now, once the evaluation is done, then the psychologist's role is, is over. After that, it's the role and the obligation of the religious superior to decide whether or not, in the light of the evidence, this individual can and hopefully will sustain the obligations of the state he is undertaking. Well, as an ordained priest, I felt um, increasingly unhappy and uh, dissatisfied in the kind of life that I had chosen. Uh, not because I hadn't opportunities and was not free to uh, help people, 
but because I became increasingly aware of the uh, little amount of help that I could in fact offer and in also I began to become aware of many factors in uh, church teaching and policy which I felt were positively unhelpful towards people. It is still possible that an individual who has all the resources of personality, all the strengths, all the intelligence necessary, it is still possible for such an individual later on in life to exercise his human freedom of choice and say, look, I'm just going. And he may find reasons which in his eye will justify his going. It's also possible that he may not be able to state clearly to himself, look, I am just exercising my freedom and I'm going. Because there is another mechanism that comes in, you see, the mechanism we call rationalization. He may have unknowingly, unwittingly, unconsciously even decided to go, to leave. And then to make, as it were, a cushion for himself to step down on, he turns his decision to leave into a situation where he claims to be pushed. In other words, it's not he that's choosing to go, it's other people are pushing him out. And we have lots of cases of that. Now, there are many different ways in which people decide to go. Let me just try to illustrate some of them. The first is the case where an individual from the very start didn't have the resources of personality to carry through the obligations of prayer, sacrifice, celibacy, solitariness, preaching, ministry to others, and so on. There are always some of these around. Always. There always have been some in that. If you look, for example, into St. Paul writing to the Galatians and the Ephesians and the Corinthians, time and time again he's talking about inadequate personalities who were either seeking or had sought the ministry. On a personal level, I found it a very lonely life. It was difficult uh, to have many uh, friends of my own age and so on who were enjoying um, a close relationship with uh, uh, their uh, partner and who had a home and who had a base and to have to come home to a monastic room at night. I found that um, quite, uh, quite bothersome, I must say. The demand of celibacy, as you've heard, seems to be among the most representative factors in so far as any factor can be isolated among the priests leaving. But it is difficult to determine the extent of this factor for a multiplicity of reasons, and not least because the sexual drive in the human personality may not express itself in a way obvious to most of us. A priest with a drinking problem may in fact essentially have a problem of unfulfilled sexuality, or he may simply have a drinking problem, or indeed he may have a problem with authority generally. Some available information may be a pointer to the extent of the demands of celibacy. A number of Dutch bishops, for instance, have expressed the wish to see the laws on celibacy changed, and there's been some publicised resignations from the Catholic priesthood involving subsequent marriage, as well as periodic demands for a change from minority groups of priests. Religious affairs journalist John Cooney the majority of priests who do leave leave because they feel that they can no longer remain celibate, that they wish to, to marry. It's a wastage of manpower because the most sensitive priests tend to want to develop relationships 
if this is uh, denied to them, then either they cut off some emotional aspects of their being, which means that they no longer can totally respond uh, in various crisis situations, or they, they leave the priesthood and, and the Catholic Church loses some of its, its best men. Professor O'Doherty is familiar with this viewpoint. Always, of course, a minority of very vocal people keep shouting exactly what you've been saying. But always the answer is always the very same. And it, there has no, been no change in celibacy or in the obligation, and there hasn't been for a thousand years. Well, not quite a thousand years. The Council of the Lateran in the 12th century, I guess, would be the point of, of, of final determination of this. But certainly the whole business of, of, of getting rid of celibacy was part of the very essence of the Reformation 300, 400 years ago. And the idea that it is now the crucial thing seems to me to be history standing on its head. It is not. It's worth noting that when a group of, I think it was 90 individuals, uh, assembled in Switzerland when the m- meeting of the European bishops was in, in session there, this made world headlines. And it was forgotten that in this country alone there were another 3,000 that weren't shouting for an abolition of celibacy. Never mind the 30,000 or 40 or 100,000 throughout Western Europe alone. You see, the small, vociferous minority always get the headlines in the popular media. And I'm saying this in no critical sense because that's what the media are for, perhaps, for all I know. But the media never seem to be able to balance the vocal, shouting, vociferous minority uh, against the strong, silent majority who vastly outnumber them at any one moment. Vastly, I assure you, vastly outnumber them. Father Paddy Toohey may be taken to be representative of that strong majority who outnumber the vocal, protesting minority, as mentioned there. A former chaplain at University College Dublin, and now a parish priest in a Dublin suburb, he has never doubted, but that he was, so to speak, in the right job. Had he never doubted his priestly role? The answer to that is quite uh, definitely no. And if you say, well, why is it so? It's quite difficult to understand. Perhaps it has something to do with, well, a great deal to do with the grace of God and a little to do with my uh, cooperation with God's grace. That may be one of the reasons. The other, on the more human level, may be my view of the priesthood itself. That is something that takes a long time to work out. Uh, Even in one's early days, you know, thinking about it and becoming a priest, what it means, you know, turning it over in one's mind, and above all things, praying about it. Because it is not simply a choice of a human kind of endeavour. It is the choice to work for those who are God's children. And that is for all mankind. And I think if that vision is there to help one right through one's days, that whatever doubts may come about one's own personal abilities and so forth, that the general uh, view of things will take one over any of these small difficulties. But for those for whom difficulties are not small, is celibacy an issue then, or merely a highlight in a composite of factors? John Cooney. 
I think this is it's true, but at the same time, I don't accept what, what in effect amounts to propaganda from the church, namely that uh, celibacy is an issue inflated by the media. I, I think that it is an issue that the churchmen who are trying to preserve an institution in a particular type of priesthood see this, the celibacy aspect as, as, as the thing that is the, the pivot of the old system. Having said that, there are, are, there are of course, other uh, factors. The whole role of a priest has changed. Um, before the council, you could be nurtured in a mood uh, of uh, priesthood. The, the process of being an altar boy early seminary, the satan, the collar, the air of piety, uh, the practice of asceticism, the avoidance of masturbation, the not looking at girls, the, the complete uh, search for otherworldliness, so that your authority came through through remoteness. That has all changed with the, the Second Vatican Council, redefining the priest as, a, as a, a man of the people at the service that uh, he was no longer just a cult figure, that he had to be uh, engaged in community, that he had to be aware of, of, of people's problems, that he should be up to date in, in psychology or, or sociology, or at least have some grasp of, of, of these social disciplines. Is there not a conflict then between the Second Vatican Council and what is still in effect in the Church? I think there is, and I think that the 1971 Synod of Bishops did not resolve this tension. John Cooney's assertions betoken some changes in the role of the priests, and we have seen many of them. And if the Church has adjusted some of its laws in the past, may it not do so in the future, particularly when faced with falling vocations and priests leaving? There are areas, certainly, where adaptation, adjustment, to use your word, has occurred. Um, For instance... At one time, charging interest on money, which was uh, on loan, was regarded as an evil thing. And then, uh, gradually, of course, usually ceased to be one of the great cardinal sins. Now, this wasn't a case where something that was evil was suddenly made good. It was a case where an abuse by some individuals charging um, rates of interest which were crippling to the borrower... Well, that practice came under control socially and a reasonable rate of interest was seen to be part of the normal uh, function of commerce. And at that stage, of course, it wasn't a question of usually it was wrong in the past being now legitimized, but rather a better discerning of what was excessive and what was not. Um, or again, one could say that uh, the church in social matters uh, adapted to Republican type government from monarchy, um, made its adjustment to bourgeois society as distinct from feudal and so on. All that is perfectly normal. But the idea that that can be generalized across the board and that almost anything can be adjusted and adapted is simply wrong. There are areas where that will simply not happen. In other words, the areas of the deposit of faith. And there are areas of uh, the discerning of the wisdom of the Holy Spirit in the governing of the church where it won't happen. Now, even in Africa, and I spent a good deal of time there with the bishops and, and missionaries of different times in Western Africa, East Africa, South Africa, and so on. There, of course, you find people saying that celibacy is not for the African. Uh, But the African is the very first to rise up in anger and denounce the white man for thinking that he can't sustain celibacy. 
celibacy will not be revoked. The Holy Father has said so over and over again. And anybody that thinks he knows better than the Holy Father about this is simply not with it, you know. But then celibacy is by no means a problem for all. This priest who left found celibacy helpful. My own experience of other people and my own feeling for myself is that celibacy is not a terribly important one, except insofar as it touches on other factors which are there. Let me put it this way. As far as I was concerned, I quite enjoyed the celibate life. Now, when you say enjoy it, I mean that the celibate life can easily, you can easily adjust to it. You can adjust to the pattern of your reading, your own private life, the fact that you can shut out people when you really don't want to be disturbed by people. There are so many aspects of the celibate life that are, are very appealing to people even outside of the priesthood. And I suppose I can certainly say, without appearing arrogant, that it wasn't a problem for me, that celibacy would never have been the thing that would make me think of opting out of, of the priesthood. But having said that, uh, it would be less than honest not to say that it was also a factor. Let me put it again this way. I think celibacy is a marvellous thing for the Church. I think that there should always be celibacy within the Church. But I also believe that the majority of priests have never made use of their celibacy in, in any sort of real positive way. You see, I think celibacy can f should free you from all the pressures that are on the ordinary person when he has to take a stand for people's rights, when he has to stand up for things that he believes are wrong, he can carry them himself. I remember many years ago having to substitute for a very good friend of mine, a Methodist minister who was asked in the north of Ireland to speak on a platform, and he himself was going to, but because of the tensions in the north, eventually somebody rang him up and said, look, if you speak there, we'll get at your wife and children. And I can remember thinking that that's what celibacy is about, that it leaves you free to be, in a sense, only concerned or worried about yourself. I don't think that it's the only factor, and some people that I've heard talk about it suggest that perhaps uh, um, a more widespread factor is difficulties with authority, with accepting the kind of authority that is very common in the church, that priests found it very hard to work, say, with parish priests, or with their bishops, or with their superiors and that that, in fact, is even a greater source of dissatisfaction. Well, it could be indeed that sometimes authority was abused, undoubtedly one must concede that. And also one must add, of course, that the exercise of authority has become much more democratic in the last ten years than ever before. I fail to understand those who rationalize their own difficulty by blaming it on authority figures that they couldn't stand. It seems to me that's cutting it upside down. The shadow of authority is often much greater than authority itself. And very often it's within that almost nebulous area that you find yourself limited. That limitation comes to the nub of the situation of priests leaving. For it is in the resistance to the authority of what they were required to teach, the very essence of the dogma of the Roman Catholic Church, which is at the root of the disenchantment, of the alienation of priests leaving. I felt that the institutional church to which I belonged tended to sacrifice individuals in favour of conformity, in favour of keeping things, keeping the ship on the right lines, in favour of, I suppose some people would call it the common good, but I always felt it was simply the system had to stay even at the expense of individuals. Now, insofar as I could crystallise it, I suppose it was the realisation of that, and that 
no matter how hard I tried to work almost as an individual, you are always representative of, of the system. You always do carry more than your own responsibility. And I would have felt that at a certain stage there is little I can do to change this policy. I really don't believe in many of the things which I, I'm in a sense being forced to believe to practice. Now when I say believe, I don't mean at a fundamental level of faith, but really at the level of, of practice and confessional and so on. And I felt that for two things. One, I couldn't really serve people as I really wanted to. And secondly, that I felt I was going to start compromising myself because you reach a stage where you begin to say, ah, hell, it's not worth it. Why not simply have your game of golf, you know, accept things as they are and do the little bit of good that you can do. Uh, I remember one man saying to me when I told him I was leaving, he said, ah, oh, you're a bit of a perfectionist anyway. For me, the uh, contraception position taken up uh, by the Holy Father and uh, by the bishops um, was in categorical, uh, a categorical denial, really, of uh, my experience of people pastorally and in the confessional and so on, where I felt that there was a very definite place for uh, the use of contraceptives within uh, married life where uh, people were experiencing great strain. Because I felt that there was more to life than simply gradually accepting the limitations and compromising. I found uh, that perhaps I could f find within my own experience a place for divorce in the case of irretrievable marital breakdown. Obviously in these two areas, as, as examples, I felt that the church uh, wasn't uh, helping people and that I wasn't helping people by being uh, insistent on these kinds of absolute prohibitions. But surely these prohibitions within a Catholic ethos are no more than the kind of sacrifice required of Catholics as part of their faith. I would accept that, that for example, in the question of divorce, that uh, it's very clearly in the biblical teaching that uh, given us by Jesus that divorce is out, uh, but it's out as a matter of an invitation. It's out as a matter of uh, calling people to live uh, a very, if you like, self-sacrificing life, or I would prefer to say um, a deeper and more loving life in which they accept a partner uh, no matter what happens. But it also seems to me that this kind of idealistic counsel, an invitation uh, to love uh, along the lines that Jesus suggested, is just that, and that uh, we have um, gotten to a stage where it's being enforced by legislation and that the heart and the reason for it has gotten, gotten out of it. The heart and the mind had gone out of it. Whatever the reasons, the actual process of leaving can be as demanding as the life which is being left. That realisation would come along for a long time. And then you're back down to the problem of, you know, do I have the courage to follow through what that means? Because I think probably many men at some stage would realise those same sort of things, but you still need courage to make the step. I would say that it is probably painful for, for both of us uh, to, make, to make the change and that they find it perhaps uh, a little difficult to, um, to see a brother departing, and I can understand that. Probably you're talking in terms of 20 full years of your life that a question mark has been put behind them, and you don't do it lightly. Uh, I would have felt that it might have been easier to stay on. Now, how do you get that sort of moral courage? 
um, I suppose you get it through prayer, you get it through trying to think through in, in the light of what God wants you to do. It seems like uh, I'm not ex very well qualified by that training and experience uh, to take up any um, uh, interesting job easily. On the other hand, uh, at other times I feel, well, that it was in fact a very good training and it was a very good experience and that my challenge to me now is to try and make the best use of it. Somebody whom I met and whom I loved helped me to sort of see, to have the courage and to move. And I had to tell my parents, which was a difficult enough thing to do, although they took it quite well. Then I had sort of three and a half years of a, a gap in my life to fill. The, the, the friends I had grown up with had three and a half years of social living that I had to catch up with. Fashions had changed a bit, I suppose, just a little bit. I found it very, very difficult to, having worn black for three and a half years continuously, to come out and put on uh, a blue shirt or a... I, to, to wear bright colours, I found it very, very difficult. When I meet uh, people, for example, I'm, some, I'm maybe hyper-conscious of whether or not I'm going to inform them of my previous uh, way of life and inform them of my present position. However, I found actually that honesty is the best policy and that um, for the most part uh, maybe this, this hypersensitivity uh, will, will probably um, go away as time goes on. Time and patience with oneself and with other people seems to be the big cure here, really. In uh, Belgium there is uh, an association of uh, priests who come together to try uh, and uh, create uh, an atmosphere, a climate where they, they can remain uh, as a group, uh, exchange their own ideas, discuss their problems uh, and readapt. Similarly in England, uh, as regards how the church as an institution looks after priests, apart from some initiatives in the Netherlands, I think that on the whole, once you decide to leave, the institutional church really just writes you off their list. I have found it very difficult and, uh, and traumatic, I must say. Uh, the trauma has been associated with the reaction of my family to the, um, or certain members of my family to this event, and also associated with the fact that I found it extremely difficult to get a suitable job. There are two distinct areas here, one which involves fulfilling work and the other which requires some therapeutic help in coming to terms with the world outside. It is significant, perhaps, that the one agency in Britain which helps in the process of adjustment offers specific help in areas of counselling, education, employment and psychological help. In 1972, over half of the former priests dealt with by this British agency were from Ireland while in this country no such planned care exists, though there is one underground hostel which uh, unofficially helps out. I've heard vaguely of a halfway house, which would be a place where some, uh, where a priest could be uh, at least find a bed and board for a while. Um, the structures that one uses are the same as the same structures as anybody who's changing his job would use. For example, one could go to the ENCO uh, authorities who are retraining industrial workers or 
as in my case, one simply goes around and uh, knocks on many, as many doors as one can. This is not to suggest that Irish bishops and superiors are ungenerous to those who leave. Most who need financial help receive such, and I heard of several cases where the former priests are in receipt of subsistence until they settle in a new career. But a structured, formal approach appears to be lacking. Perhaps there is a severity in the Irish character about such defections, as they would be called. But again, we have to take the long view. You see that goodness knows why a particular man has done a particular thing. And one must do everything possible to support him and help him. And I think that's only right. You see, the, the other thing is you could be very cruel. And as far as my own attitude towards them, it's one of sympathy, it's one of help as far as I can in any possible way. Because everyone, no matter what his uh, behaviour or anything else, is still a child of God. I think that the church in general needs the ability to be able to accept people and individuals and systems which are different without trying to dismiss them or without trying to make them less than they are. The cross can be anything, but it certainly is suffering. It doesn't necessarily mean physical pain. It can mean mental anguish or it can mean uh, sacrifice without anguish, without that sort of suffering, but it always means sacrifice. And if an individual thinks that priesthood is going to fulfill him or make himself happy, then he has got the thing back to front because priesthood is not given for the individual who is a priest. It is always given instrumentally for the service of the people of God. That's where the real sacrifice comes in, not necessarily pain and suffering in, in the bad sense, but always the primary sacrifice of the priest is the sacrifice of his very self. So if people talk to me about self-fulfillment or priests are going to make me happy or religious life for me the way that I'm going to be happy, then I say he's got it wrong. He's now thinking of priest and religious life as instrumental for his own welfare, whereas he must empty himself and his priesthood is instrumental for the welfare of others. It's a sacrificial priesthood.